body of Christ, the bride of Jesus. Lord, give us understanding of that. Help us grasp the magnitude of what you laid down in the foundations of the world, what you were going to do, how you were going to proclaim your name through the church. So Lord, let us not be ignorant of it. Fill our hearts and minds today with truth that flushes out in loving action and loving service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you imagine trying to build a house without house plans? I don't know if anybody in here has ever built a house. We, we built a half a house in Cottonwood. We added on to an old house. And I remember getting the plans back from the guy who drew them, and I, I, I literally thought he had the wrong house. There, there, was, there was so many plans. There was dirt and foundations, and I mean, just so much to it. And I sat down with the man that was helping me build it. He took me through page after page after page of these plans and showed me the importance of the drawings, why I should adhere to these plans. How about maps? We all have them on our phones now. Take me to Stanford. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go on 25, get on, you know. They're important to us, are they? You know, there's women, a lot of the women are gone this morning. Don't know where all of their husbands are, but think about it. Men, we often don't like asking instructions. It was part of the fall. When Adam got chucked out of the garden, he left his maps there. I'm not sure why, but we don't like asking for instructions. But how important are they? I have proudly not asked for instructions a time or two in my life and found myself wandering aimlessly, burning $4 a gallon fuel because you don't ask directions. They are important, aren't they? Instructions, oh, those instructions on Christmas Eve when you're trying to put together that bike. Some are very poorly written. Some we choose not to use. But instructions are important, aren't they? When we turn to God's word and we look at God's master plan for the body of Christ, he has given us the, the blueprint. He has given us the map. He has given us the instructions. And if we're willing to say, oh Lord, teach us, the truth is there. It's in front of us. And that's where the wrestle is. Man often thinks that he knows the way better than God at times. He would never say that publicly. But yet we put our heads together, church growth movements. How can we grow the church? How can we make things better? How can we do this and how can we do that? And some of those things are good. There's been some good biblical things that have come out of that. But more often they are man-driven instead of God-driven and, and man-centered instead of Christ-centered. This set of verses here is an incredible blueprint by God. I entitled the sermon, God's Master Plan for the Body of Christ. And in it lies out precisely of how he views the church and how it is supposed to act and function and move. You'll notice that there are things within this text that link us back to the previous text and the text before, things like service, things like the body and parts this is a text that sums up a lot of those. This is a text for us to learn from. 
Let me go down through this just verse by verse and see what we can learn and how we can apply this and live out this truth at Grace Bible Church. First of all, notice the development of God's master plan for the body of Christ. Notice in verse 11, there's a development here. First he gave, verse 11, he gave, so this is a gift from God, this he is God. This is one who has set this in order from the foundations of the world. The first thing he did for the early church was he gave apostles and prophets. The church needed leadership. It needed men who had been with Jesus. Men that had walked and talked with him. Men that saw him suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And so he gave to the church right off of the bat men that had seen all this, witnessed it. That's Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Philip, and so on. He gave them as a gift to the church so the church wouldn't have any way to say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. We were there. We heard him preach the Sermon on the Mount. We watched him heal the paralytic. We saw him forgive sin. We saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. We watched him mocked, beat, and hung on a tree. And we watched death not be able to hold him. See that great gift God gave to the church? And what the apostles did is they did not just hold that to themselves, they trained men. They trained, they, they took men within the church and they taught them the things that they had learned and they asked them to pass them on to faithful men, those truths as well. And as the verse goes on, you see that some became evangelists. Some became those folks that ran ahead of the church hailing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are also in the church as well. There are men who proclaim Christ in an evangelistic way constantly. They're, they're men that have this gift to share Christ whatever the situation it is. But he's also given some as pastors and teachers. This is those who care for the church now in its current state. And I think it's interesting how the Lord set this up. He, he looked at the church as a whole right now. It's beginning, it's, it's birth the apostles and prophets that it needed because there were not a, a complete canon yet. There was not a complete manuscript. The canon wasn't closed yet. The scriptures were gonna be written. And then he gave evangelists that would move forward. Uh, uh, the, the reason why Samaria got discipled was because a man named Philip decided to go there by the leading of the scriptures. And many churches were planted in that region because evangelists went out and preached the gospel. These are missionaries. These are people driven to share the gospel with those who have not heard it. But he also trained men called pastors, shepherd. Poimero is the word. Those who shepherd the flock of God and those who teach, instruct. And he gifted the church with those. But notice that verse 12 is what they are to be doing. They're, these pastors and teachers of the modern church now are, are given, remember they're a gift, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, let me look at just three thoughts here just within this verse briefly here. Equipping, service, and building up. Those are the main thoughts in verse 12. To equip, to serve, and to build up. The word equipping is a, is a word meant in the original Greek word as a, as a word that 
is to return to original state, to restore something, or to make complete, probably more used um, more often that way, to bring something into completion. And so pastors and teachers, their job is to help men and women, boys and girls, be more like Christ. That is our job. Teach them to love Jesus. Teach them to love his word. It is the mandate that I have, and our elders and pastors that care for you, we have that mandate. Our job is to bring a love of Jesus to the church, push that, teach that, cultivate it, plant it. That's what our goal is. Teach you to love. Be complete in Christ. Paul said this to the church in Corinth that struggled with these things. At the end of his second letter, chapter 13, verse 11, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete. That was his goal, be complete. To be complete, the word means to be lacking nothing, to be like Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13, 20 through 21, the author here said this, now the God of peace who brought, it, brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, now listen to this, equip you in every good thing to do his will. Equip you. And so we look at it this way. It, it is not, I cannot equip you without bringing you Jesus. If I don't bring you Christ in his word, I can equip you. That's how we equip you. We bring you Christ in his word, the sufficiency of Jesus, the sufficiency of the scriptures. Equipping is done with several areas. First, we do it through the scriptures. The Bible says that all scriptures are God-breathed, God-inspired. They're a product. That word means they're a product of God. God expired. He used energy. He, he, he brought his own word forth, and he gave it to us. And the Bible says they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's how we equip People come to Grace Bible Church and they hear their first 45, 50 minute sermon, some that they've never ever heard before. The word is not preached very often in our world today. It's offensive and, and there's chapters they, don't, they wanna stay away from. We believe in expository preaching. We preach verse by verse. We preach through books. We don't go around in little difficult session, sections. It's important that we learn from all of the scriptures and see them as inspired of God. We deal directly with the difficult things in scripture because we know that it's the scriptures that, that, in, that equip us for life. There's nothing more than we as pastors want you to love your Bible, to trust it, to read it, to examine it and let it examine your heart. Let it be the mirror that you look into to let God change your life. The second thing that we equip you with is a love for Christ-centeredness, namely his sufficiency. One of the things that God calls pastors to do is to hold Jesus up high, to hold him up high and to realize that he is sufficient. He's sufficient for life and godliness, Peter said. He's sufficient for marriage and child rearing. He's sufficient for that job that, that is difficult. He's sufficient for finances. He's sufficient for health, both good and poor. He is enough. 
He's, he's what you need. He's what I need. He's what we need as a church. There's a love for Christ that must be taught and, and brought from the pulpit and brought in counseling and brought in teaching and brought in home, home groups that helps the body of Christ realize Jesus is sufficient. Listen to this verse in Colossians chapter 2, 9 and 10. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus was God in every way, that verse says. But then it says this. And in him you have been made complete. Oh, the world looks to everything but Jesus. And it pushes Christians. It pushes Christians to put their hope in a pill, in finances, in something else. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says you're complete in Christ. Lean on him. Lean on him. He'll carry you. He'll take you from from where you're at to, to where he wants you to be. He wants you complete. This is what pastors do. We lean on Christ so we can help you lean on Christ. Philippians 4.13, a verse you all know. It is, a, it is a verse in the context of anxiety. That's what the context is. I can do all things through who? Through him, through Jesus, who strengthens me. That's what we're going to do when we counsel you. You come to our offices and spend time with us. Our goal is to listen, to hear, to understand where you're, where you're at. But our ultimate goal is to move you to dependency on Jesus and his word. Dependency in that difficult marriage. Dependency in that difficult job. Dependency in that difficult neighbor you may be dealing with. Whatever the situation may be, our job is to equip you, to help you learn from God's word and from our Savior that he is enough. We also equip with prayer. Our job as pastors is first to pray for you as well. Letter after letter, Paul begins, you know this, you can hear it. I am constantly praying for you. Paul prays that way. I'm constantly praying for you. It's one of the ways that we go to God and talk to him about you this week. I know this body of Christ has been prayed for in elder meetings and staff meetings and individual meetings and and individual pastors and elders praying for this. People within the church praying for the church. This is what we do. Listen to this verse. I ran into this at the end of Colossians. It's a a fascinating verse, verse 11. Epaphras, Paul says, who is one of your number, one of your number. We believe him probably to be one of the pastors in the Colossae church. Paul had never been to Colossae at this point. He said, a bondservant of Jesus Christ sends you his greetings. Epaphras had gone to help Paul. Paul was in prison. He was gone there, sent by the church to care for him. He was most likely one of their shepherds among them. And he says this about Epaphras. Listen to this. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Boy, that struck me this week. Scott. Pray for the church. See, pastors can spend a lot of time studying, and it's very important we do. We need to know the word of God. We need to love Christ in order to encourage the church to love him. But we must pray. We must pray, and we must pray fervently for our church, for the people that God gives us care for. Pray for you. We love hearing from you. We love getting on the back of a card that says, hey, my sister's going to surgery. That goes right to the elders. That gets emailed out to them, and we pray. 
We have a list of prayer requests that I keep on my desk, just praying for people within the church, just a joy to intercede on behalf of the body of Christ. But prayer is not only for the leadership of the church, prayer is for all believers. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. Do you pray? See, I would probably all don't pray enough. Am I okay saying that? We probably all don't pray enough. And, and, and prayer is not always a time where you're quiet and in your office or somewhere where no one can bug you or find you and you're on your knees. It's certainly there are times for that and I would encourage you to get alone. But prayer is often behind a steering wheel driving a Silicon Valley. It's often out in your garden. It's often after moms walked out of a room dealing with a child and begging God to help her with wisdom. See, prayer is something that we do incessantly. First Thessalonians says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. You want to be equipped? Pray. Prayer humbles us. Prayer is that aspect of our lives that we come to God and we go, oh God, I need you. See, when we don't pray, what we are saying is, I don't need you. I will make this massive financial decision without you, God, today. I will parent these little children, these lives, these gifts you gave me without asking you for help. I will try to love this spouse of mine without asking you for help. Foolish, isn't it? Sounds, when you write that out in your notes, it's very, very convicting. Pray. See, equipped church is a church that prays. We pray and we beseech the Lord of heaven. Help us, Lord. We are a needy people. We are children that need a father. We are not like our children who grow up, who maybe still honor their parents, but they go on to be parents themselves. In the Christian life, we need a father. You never outgrow that need. Amen, older saints in here? Saints that have lived a life a little longer than some others? You need a father, don't you? One that you can go to, one you can talk to, one who knows every need. The fourth area that we equip the body of Christ with is an interesting one. Maybe you have not thought about this. We teach people to repent. We teach people to repent. You say, well, Scott, why is, how is that part of equipping? You take a church made up of all kinds of people who don't repent, who always blame the spouse or the neighbors or the other people, or always, it's always somebody else's problem, who never own their own sin. Mm. Do you want to go to that church? See, repentance is, even as believers, repentance, certainly there is a repentance that brings us to salvation, repent of our sins, we put our faith in Jesus, that he died, was buried and resurrected, he took our sins away and, and redeemed us and made us righteous children of God. That's repentance to salvation. But there's a daily repentance. This is not penance 
of going and doing something in order to gain forgiveness. This is owning sin. Paul said this in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. I, I, I ran into that verse this week and I thought, wow, what a verse of repentance. Lord, here's a prayer of believers. Lord, without you, I'm probably gonna do the wrong thing. I need you. Lord, today I did not love that woman you gave me the way you asked me to. I did not love that man, that spouse. I did not love your children. I'm sorry for that, Lord. I know you died for that. I know you hung on the cross for that lustful, evil thought that went through my mind today. Forgive me, Lord. See, in counseling and in shepherding, our goal is to help people repent. Dear friend of mine who trained me in ministry, he said this, Scott, if you can bring people to the knowledge of sin, we have an answer for that. Jesus died for sin. He didn't die for excuses. He, he didn't die for manipulation. He didn't die for blame shifting. He died for sin. So when you and I get to the point where you say, the way I responded to this loved one of mine was sinful. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for that. Thank you for giving me freedom from that. See, repentance is a part of our life. Husbands and wives who repent regularly have a good marriage. They raise good children because they practice what they preach. Fifth, we equip people by learning to suffer. Jesus himself said there'll be many trials and tribulations in this world. If you got saved and someone told you, hey, everything's gonna be rosy and great from here on out, you'll have all the money and everything you need if you just have enough faith, lied to you. Suffering is part of what God has asked us to do. We feel up his suffering. Paul says we continue on in the suffering that Christ had. We actually take that on. Peter says, look, this is God's will that you suffer for him. There is suffering in this life. Now, you and I don't like to suffer, do we? And I'm not telling you, willingly go out there, hey, shoot me. That's not what we're telling you here. But when suffering comes your way to examine if you caused it or God allowed it, or maybe both. See, God allows suffering so you depend on him. Do you pray more when you suffer? I do. We, do you, do you read more and study more and try to understand what God is doing when you suffer? See, that's God's intention. Suffering is brought into our life. It's part of that confirmation conforming us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because he suffered, we suffer. We suffer along with him. Now, it's never even close to measurable to what our Lord did, but some he asked suffer a little more. 
Some he gives you the faith to suffer. So much the fact that you would leave the comfortable life of America and go overseas and live in a hut somewhere. Some people do that. But not all are called to equal suffering. Some will live a life relatively suffering free. Others will suffer their entire life. But you take a bunch of people who suffer for the glory of the Lord and put them in a church together. That's who I want to be with. I want to be with that group because they'll give more. They'll love more. They'll be kinder and compassionate. See, people will understand who their suffering is from God and accept that. They are wonderful people to have a church with. Fight it and be angry and be mad and bittered. We know what that does. A root of bitterness destroys a church. We are here to help you love the scriptures, love Christ, to pray for you, to help you learn and us to see the, the, the importance of repentance and to learn to suffer. The equipping of the believers for the glory of the Lord. The next word is service. Service is a result of faithful men holding up Christ to the body whom in return respond with worshipful service for the glory of Christ. We started off this series with Romans chapter 12 and there Paul told us, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you brethren by the mercies of God, there's the motivation, the gospel to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So the result of God-gifted pastors who faithfully pray for the flock, preach unashamedly the Christ-centeredness of Scripture, love their people, uphold them before the Lord, is that people learn to serve. They learn to serve the king. And that's the goal. So, So my job is defined like this. Help you love Christ, help you love his word, that causes and gives an inner desire to motivate you to serve. Now, The question of gifting came up this week in some of the home groups. God, back to me, I hear it. Uh, Gifting is something that we have to be very careful of. There was a test that came out in the 70s, put out by a seminary, and it caused more problems in churches than than we've ever seen almost in anything that ever happened. Here's our stance on it. Love Jesus, love his word, see needs and meet them. Let me say it again. Love Jesus, love his word, See needs and meet them. And we'll move as much as God does that in your heart. And, and our job is to help you love Christ, love his word, see needs and meet them. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, now listen to this, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Maybe that's a statement we could put somewhere. That would maybe help us always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing, now listen to this, knowing that your toil, your labor, what you do is not in vain in the Lord. Every time you get on your knees and pray for somebody in this church, that is ministry. You can be the most gifted person in the world. And believe me, the world has them, right? Gifted athletes, gifted musicians, gifted business people gifted IT people. They're incredibly gifted people out there. I'll tell you, the most gifted people to the church are ones who love, pray, 
and honor the Lord. What a great thing to do, abounding. Someone said, well, what are the gifts? Well, everybody wants to run to teaching and singing, and certainly those are there. We, you know, we sell that today. These are visible gifts. They're, they're things that God has, and he's, and he's equipped some. But most of the list is about those things you don't always see. They're so important, and we mentioned this last week, that if you take out a kidney, life will not be the same. They're sensitive. They're, they, they're, not, they're not out as an extremity. They wouldn't last on the outside. Do you see this? Do you see the importance of the body and its service to the Lord? Do you pray? I, I get things that come through my office that I sit and weep sometimes. Some of our dear saints in this church who over time somehow it gets back to me that this person has faithfully prayed for this other person. And nobody knew it but God. And it finally got back to me and I said, wow, body Christ function. See needs, meet them, you will find your gift. See needs, meet them, you'll find your gift. That's, that's what we do. We serve for Jesus, for his glory. Do you see needs? Are there needs within the church? Do you see them? That's the first start. Do you see them? What are they? Go meet them. Building up, another word we want to tackle here. Proper, equip, proper equipping by the leadership leads a Christ-driven, service-oriented body. The result is inevitably the body will be built up in Christ. The term literally is of a house plans, of building a house. There's a step process to it. And so these things, when we equip, when we serve, there's this building up. As each of us let Christ develop our roles within this spiritual house, we get stronger and stronger. The house gets stability because Christ is building us along. We're submitting to him. We're going by the plan. We're following the instructions. We're living according to the word. We gain a greater opportunity to be used of the Lord. I love this verse in Acts chapter 20. Paul is, for the last time, what we know of, seeing the elders out of Ephesus. This is a church he planted, probably men he trained. He's meeting with them. He's on his way to Rome. and He stops in Miletus. They come down. And he, he gives them a very sobering charge of sticking to the word of God and shepherding the flock of Christ of which you were called to. And he charges them all these things. And then towards the end, verse 20, I mean, chapter 20, verse 32 of Acts 20, this is what he says. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That's his last words to these, to these men. I commend you to God and I commend you to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's his last words to the church. I commend you to God and his word. It'll build you up. It'll build you up. See, today in the church growth movement, you're commended to all these other things. There's, there's whole books. You can find stacks of stuff on there. And, and somewhere down deep in all their plans and all the things that you must do to, in order to increase your church and make it big and powerful and everybody rich, they'll say something about the Bible somewhere in there. Paul, the greatest church planner that we know, said this, commend them to God, commend them to the word. That's what we do. That's why we preach the word every Sunday when you came. We know it's the best thing for you. The maturing of the church is directly tied to our love for Christ and our love for his word, not our giftedness.
If it was giftedness, we're in trouble. And, and, and it doesn't take you very uh, hard to read 1 Corinthians 12 through 1 Corinthians 14 and looked at a very gifted church that was an absolutely mess. I told someone this week, I said, when you get to those passages, you find that Paul has to command them to get in line when they exercise their gift. What does that tell you? Get out of the way. My gift's more important than yours. Hmm. There's a problem there in that church. So Paul said, love, love one another. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't keep a record. That passage of love is not just solely for your wedding. It was given in the midst of a difficult church that was rebellious, fighting, and not caring about what God's word said. And so often I tell people in in Corinthians, he finally just gets down to say, love one another. Just love. Let's start there. Because that's what Christ did, and that's what his Bible teaches us. Love one another. Second thought, the goal of God's master plan for the body of Christ is in verse 13. Notice this. Wow, what a, what a verse. This is what we're after. This is, a, this is the goal for Grace Bible Church. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That, that is a statement. If you ever want a statement of what a church is ultimate goal is to be, you would read verse 13. You would read that verse and say, that's what we're after. This is how we understand God's plan for our church. There's several things that just jump out of here. Number one, he says the unity of faith. This is the body of Christian truth. This is Christian doctrine. This is coming to an understanding that God has laid down truth for us to unite around. Understanding that. Having a a unified understanding of salvation, of sin, of reconciliation, of eternity. Coming to this body of truth that we call the Christian doctrine. That's what he wants us to get to. That's why we must teach doctrine um, from the pulpit. We must sing doctrine in our songs. We must teach doctrine in our community groups. Doctrine is very important because doctrine is not some doctrinal thoughts that men come up with. It is the truth, the central truths to what we believe found in the scriptures. There's a Bible. God gave it to us. It's inspired, it's inerrant, and it's his perfect word. If we don't have that to stand on, then Scott can get up here and say anything he wants. No, we hold to this. We believe this to be inerrant. It is perfect, God's word. Even the hard parts, we believe it's from him. We believe God is God. He's God in heaven. He is the author of life. He is the creator. He is perfect and holy in all that he does. We believe he sent his son to take away the death of sin, to stand in our place, to renew us, to make us new creatures. See, these are fundamental doctrine that brings us together. This is where unity happens around truth. We must teach these things. Notice in the start of chapter four how he handles this. Chapter four, uh, one, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, he really was in prison when he wrote this, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. 
You go, wow, there's a whole sermon right there, but just think just briefly, what does he mean by that? Well, I plucked you out of the world and I put you in my bride. I saved you, cleansed you from all your sins so you can just do whatever you want. I don't think what he's saying. I think he says, look, I saved you from eternal damnation. I've given you a life, eternity with Jesus Christ with, with, to, to walk with him forever, to have free from your sin. Walk that way. And he knows that he knows us. He knows we're but flesh and we're but dust at times and we're weak. But there's an urging that we've been called to something greater than what we see in the world. Notice how we do it, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Showing tolerance for one another in love. See, that keeps us from going, well, you know, I got the standard of how to walk worthy. Just follow me and we'll all walk worthy together. Oh, boy, wouldn't that be bad? He says, no, you do this with humility. Lord, my spouse doesn't love you. He doesn't know you as his personal savior. But I want to walk with you, Lord. I've watched many women pray that prayer with me as they sat in my office and wept because their husband doesn't know the Lord or vice versa, a husband that has a wife that doesn't know the Lord. Lord, I know you called me. I'm begging you to save my spouse. But why I wait for you, will, I, will you help me walk humbly so I can be a picture of Jesus? Will you help me be gentle with them so I can be a picture of Jesus? Will you help me be patient with them as I wait for you to save them, Lord, so I can be a picture of Jesus? Help me be tolerant. This doesn't mean give up on biblical truth. It, it means to, to, to know that that person doesn't have the spirit of God in their life yet. And it's difficult for them to see what you see. It, it shows that in the church, maybe there's, there's probably out, clearly there's people who have grown a little stronger in their love for Christ than others, but we should be tolerant for those who, who maybe don't understand things. And you bring them along, you, you, you coax and you pray and you lovingly bring that person along. That's how you love one another. But verse three, look what he says here, and here's my point. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Well, what is that unity of the spirit? The spirit shines everything on Christ. The spirit doesn't do his own show. He says, everything I do is about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we strive to preserve what the spirit is doing. He is shining things on Christ. He's shining it on Christ because we're one body, we're one spirit, just as you were called into one holy calling, our one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What he's showing is we all belong to one, and so we're, we're tolerant, we're patient, we're kind as God brings us along. The next word is the knowledge of the Son of God. Quickly, there's so much here I can see. I'm not gonna get all the way through this this morning, but... He says that we come not only to the unity of faith, but also to the knowledge of the Son of God. This is an interesting word. It's not the word um, just simply to know some facts. Or, or is it just simply about the knowledge of salvation? It is more the idea of a true knowledge, of a more fuller sense of knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is. That is our goal. This is what the maturing church does. It's constantly grasping to know Christ better. Let me take you to a verse that just drives us home. Uh, Philippians chapter three.
Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says this, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I count as lost for the sake of Christ. Paul lists kind of a, a statement of who he was before faith in the preceding verses. He's given all that up for Jesus. He does not see that as any value anymore. So he says, I count it all lost for the sake of Christ. Verse eight, note, listen to this. More than that, I count all things to be lost. Now notice this, in the viewing of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I see the fact of knowing Jesus more important than anything else I could ever achieve on this earth. Wow. If we could teach our children that. We spend so much time trying to teach our children to get the best jobs, the best schooling, all of those things. And in the end, sometimes they grasp that brass ring and they don't love Jesus. Dads, if there's anything that you can't fail at, is helping your children grasp for Jesus. In the end, they can be the most powerful, gifted people the world has ever known and never know Jesus. See, Paul says, I count it all lost. All that stuff is just rubbish compared to knowing Christ. In fact, he goes on in the middle of eight, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I don't know what that all things was, but being a Pharisee, probably saved around the age of 30. He probably lost wife, children, homes, finances, power, authority. He lost everything. And he says, I count them all trash, rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Uh, Verse nine, I don't want to be found in myself. I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the raw. Look at me. I want to be found in the faith in Christ, he says. The righteousness, what comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. He wants Jesus. And if you're in here today and you say, Lord, I, I'm not running that race. I seem to be chasing everything but that right now. Repent. Repent. The Lord knows you need to feed your family. The Lord knows you need clothes. The Lord knows you need a roof over your head. Is he not a good God who does that for those who curse him? Just think how more important you are to him. And so we need to repent at times and say, Lord, I'm not running to know you. I'm running to know me and my problems and what I need. Lord, help me run after you. Peter's last penned inspired words that we have said this, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, amen. And then they killed him. Grow. Grow. What's withholding you from growing? Jesus said this in John 10, 27, 28, my sheep, what do they do? They hear my voice and I know them 
and they follow me. That little phrase, don't forget that part. They come after me. The other sheep, they don't know my voice and they don't follow me. Is that not true? Is that not true in today's world? They don't know the voice of Jesus and they are not following Jesus. Watch the news. It's not that hard. But my sheep, the ones that I have pulled out of the pastures of the world and put them in my pasture, the ones I feed and the ones I care for and the ones I stay among them, they hear me and they follow me. Are you following them? This is the blueprint of the church. The last word we'll take on and then we'll close is the mature man. As you go back to our passage in Ephesians, it says this, until we all attain the unity of faith understanding, grasping, living the principles of doctrine and truth to the Christian church and to the knowledge of the Son of God that we're ready to lay all things down to follow him, to know him, to grasp him, to run after him. And then he says to the, to the mature man, to the mature person, without a doubt, God's greatest goal for his church is that every believer, without exception, be brought into the confirmation of Jesus Christ. He wants to conform us. This is what he means when he says, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. God's goal is to refine each and every one of us in this room to be like Jesus. And I'll guarantee you he's going to accomplish it. He's going to get you there. One way or another, when you step into his presence, you will be like him. And he is moving a group of people called Grace Bible Church to be more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He predetermined the fact that he was going to bring you and I into the image of Jesus. And he starts this at salvation. He washes, you away, washes your sins away and he begins to chisel away at you. Don't, don't despise the hammer and chisel of God. When he starts to get rough edges on you, he's taking something off you that doesn't look like Jesus. We all have them. It's this big lump. And we can't see it. We think we're God's gift to the church. And we get this big nodule. Hey, how you doing? Jesus loves you. God loves you to take out the hammer and the chisel and start knocking that thing off. And it hurts sometimes. Because about that time you realize, I have a big hairy growth on me. And I never saw it. My wife told me about it. My children pointed it out. But my pride wouldn't let me see it. And now God has humbled me to help take it off. That's what he's doing. He's bringing us to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He's maturing us. 1 John 2, 6 says this, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says, but we all with unveiled faces now, now we see Jesus before he is, beholding in the mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed, metamorphosized, changing into the same image from glory, salvation to glory, eternity, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. GBC, press on. 
Let's mature. Let's grow. Let's submit. Let's let the Lord change us into who he wants us to be. Let's be his bride. Father, we only got a portion of way through this passage, but it is rich. We just don't want to just thumb through the blueprints this morning. We don't want to just peruse them or glance at them, Lord. We want to know your blueprint. So, Lord, it takes time for us. We, we are but dust, Lord. We're, we, we're slow to obey sometimes, Lord. But, Father, we want to learn. So you, we pray, and I'm, I'm praying for my brothers and sisters that, that sit here before me, Lord. I'm praying on their behalf. We want to be a church that loves Jesus and loves his word. We want to be a church that says, what does the Bible say? Let's do that. Even though it's costly, even though it may hurt, even though we may be outcast for it, but Lord, give us a love for your son and a love for his word so that you would be glorified. And Lord, let us be honest about ourselves. Individually in this room, may we repent of sin. May we repent of a lack of desire, of not know, want, wanting to know you, Lord. And Lord, as you deal with us individually, the whole will become mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Lord. This is what we're after. Lord, be gracious and kind to us and help us, Lord. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your love that you don't abandon us. You are the perfect picture of patience. And so, Lord, we lean on that as you conform us. May we be moving towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name.